0: The sermon text this morning includes several passages, beginning with Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. John five thirty seven through 40. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 5, verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Luke 24 verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully
1: Let's pray together. Let no many of you become teachers, for as such you shall incur a stricter judgment. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing. Word of truth. And so, Father, now by faith I am in Christ and through Him I present myself to you to work. To work with all the strength that you will supply, to work for the honor of Jesus, to work to serve my people. Please do not let me be lazy or slipshod in my labors now. Grant that we together would see the glory of your Son. Those of us who are already in Him need that above all else. Those not yet in him need that above all else for their salvation. So come now and bring glory to him by sanctifying and saving. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we've, uh, we've reached by finishing chapter 22. I know that comes as a shock to you that we're actually done with chapter 22, but it's, a, it's true. And as we, uh, as we move into chapter 23, which we'll do next week, we're at, a, we're at a major transitional seam in the gospel of Matthew. And so I want, before we move into chapter 23, and then as things accelerate, Toward uh, the end of the gospel, uh, I want to pause for a week and to take stock, to reflect with you on some important themes that are uh, at the heart of how we're to read and understand not only uh, Matthew's gospel, but the entire Bible. And I've been thinking about these things, uh, these themes, for quite a while, and I've been looking for the right opportunity to address them with you. And as far as I can understand God's leading, I believe that now is the right time. And so, uh, really, if you want to think about what we're doing today, is what I hope, I hope this is going to be a forest sermon, where we're going to pull back and up together away from the individual trees so that we can take in uh, the big picture view of uh, how do you read and interpret the Bible? What is the ultimate meaning of the Scriptures? I mean, what we're going to be talking about this morning, really, and thinking about together, and worshiping over this morning, is what, at least implicitly, we're doing every week. But this week, I want to I make sure that it's locked down and explicit in all of our minds and in our hearts. You know, uh, reading the Bible, this is because reading the Bible is not the same thing as understanding it and even knowing the bible and i'll put quotation marks around that knowing the bible is not the same thing as knowing the bible the way the bible knows itself meaning that our interpretation or submitting meaning that 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 we need to submit our interpretation and our Understanding of the Bible, to the way the Bible knows itself, to the Bible's interpretation of the Bible. Now, I know that sounds a little strange to you. Um, let me try to r- explain what I mean uh, by, by reminding you of a quote. Uh, one of you know, there, I heard a lot of sentences and I read a lot of sentences in seminary, and maybe I carry around in my brain about 20 of them, but they were the nuggets. I know that my professors, that would just discourage them so much to hear that. Only 20? But one of the gems was when I heard Dr. Bruce Walkie say, men, in order to understand something, you have to stand under it. Oh boy, that's big. What he's saying is that, is that comprehension is the, excuse me, that submission is, is the root and not the fruit of comprehension. Now, I had to change the battery in our Jetta. I know you're shocked. I, I had to change, I actually did it. I had to change the battery in our Jetta on Friday in our driveway. I'm sure our neighbors, when they saw me under the hood of our car, uh, you know, with the hood open and me leaning in there and tools, I'm sure they, they were tempted to call 911, and bring the SWAT team in but they did not. And I actually was able to successfully change this battery. But you know, uh, I had to submit to the way the Jetta is, is designed in order to get the battery out. Because when I opened the hood, I've changed batteries on our other cars, but those are Japanese cars. And I looked in, and I looked at the battery, And I looked at how the battery was packed in, and I saw all these things around the battery that were going to make it incredibly difficult for me to get that battery out of there. This should have been much simpler, Wolfgang, than you made it. But it didn't matter what I wanted. If I was going to get that battery out of there and the new battery in, I was going to have to submit as the first step to the way that engine compartment was organized. And the same thing is true about the Bible. Submission is the root. It's where you begin. You have to submit to the Bible on its own terms before you can comprehend it. If you want to learn Bulgarian, you are not going to learn Bulgarian by, by demanding that Bulgarian and all of its irregular verbs and its subjunctive mood yield to you. You're going to have to yield to Bulgarian. And so the thesis I want to commend to you this morning uh, from the selection of texts that we're looking at is that when, when we stand under the Bible, what we see is that from beginning to end, there is one towering theme that the Bible presents throughout the entire scope of its pages and its revelation, and that theme is the glory of Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, that the Bible doesn't just contain the gospel, but that the Bible is about the gospel. And unless you see that, unless we submit to the Bi- at the front end that that is what the Bible is communicating to us, no matter where we stand within the Bible, we'll never understand it. So this morning, what I want to do with you is explore that theme under three headings. First is that Jesus Christ is the hero of history. Secondly, that he's the hero of the Bible. And third, that he is the hero of of our lives, and that i 'll conclude with a couple of pastoral reflections under that heading, so first, uh, Jesus Christ is the hero of history let's let 's begin with genesis uh, three fourteen and fifteen so if you turn it's, it should be on page three in your pew Bible, it should be relatively easy to find um, and I know we 've looked at this this uh, particular these, this particular pair of verses uh, many times in the past before, and there 's one uh, particular aspect or implication of verse fifteen. Uh, in particular, that I want to focus on that that bears on what we're going to be thinking about this morning. So let's let's just read these texts, right? Uh, You know the scene. Adam and Eve have sinned. The Lord has appeared. He uh, He has asked them questions and received from them something far less than actual confession. And the Lord, with Adam and Eve listening in, then pronounces his judgment on the serpent. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. These are immediate consequences for the, the serpent's uh, defiance of God and his uh, enlisting. Uh, Adam and Eve, in sinning against them, immediate consequences, but now notice we get to verse fifteen, and verse fifteen is uh, god 's assurance, promise, taunting, if you will, of the serpent of uh, who is the embodiment of Satan, and saying to him, with Adam and Eve listening in with the guilty parties listening in, he wants them to hear him announce into Satan's face, the, the absolute divinely guaranteed assurance of Satan's ultimate defeat. I will put enmity between you and the woman. You see, God is saying, I'm going to defeat you. And here's how I'm going to do it. I am personally going to put I'm going to insert myself, as it were, between your designs and guilty sinners. I'm going to put enmity between you and I'm going to between you and the woman. I'm going to insert myself. Yes, but how are you going to do that, God? By raising, answer. Uh, I'm going to raise up a seed of the woman, between your offspring, literally seed, and her offspring, literally seed. He's going to do that by raising up from the woman's line. This is amazing. Not coming from without, but from within the woman's line. And it's interesting that a father is not mentioned when you think about the virgin birth. From within the woman's line, God is going to raise up a seed of that woman, a descendant of that woman, of the guilty sinner. And this this seed is going to be the means by which God overthrows Satan and all of his designs. And how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to bruise the head of Satan. He's going to inflict a fatal wound. And how's he going to do that? Through his own suffering. You see that? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you see, what God is saying in the very moment of Uh, of adam and eve's rebellion and guilt god is coming in and announcing his triumph and he's going to do it through a seed of the woman god's painting a picture it's a very powerful picture he this seed this seed is going to notice the picture that god is uh, depicting to the serpent and then also for adam and eve the 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 seed's heel is going to be on the serpent's head. So you have a picture of this seed standing in triumph over the conquered serpent. That's the image that he's painting, that he wants on Adam and Eve's mind. But make no mistake, this is not a Clark Kent kind of triumph where the train comes rushing down. Clark just puts his hand up like that and the train is destroyed and Clark is un- unharmed. That is not what this is picturing. There is a, there's triumph that is uh, achieved through conflict and it is utter and complete triumph, but it is a conflict which is going to lead to and produce suffering for that seed. The seed's triumph will be achieved through the seed's suffering. So right from the beginning, my friends, we have embedded into the logic of the Bible the DNA of the cross. Just right away, You have triumph that is achieved, triumph over sin, and all of its consequences that is achieved through suffering. Now, what does that have to do with how we read the Bible? Well, absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Because in these verses, in the immediate aftermath of man's rebellion against God, God is not simply announcing the ultimate outcome of history. He is announcing the entire purpose of human history from this point forward. You see, by all rights, let me say that again. God is not just saying, well, this is how it's all going to turn out in the end. He is saying that. But he is saying much more than that. He is saying the only reason there is any history, there's going to be any history from this point forward, is so that that conquering seed can come forth. Now, friends, that's not a little idea. That's a big idea. Because by all rights, by uh, by the measure of strict justice, once Adam and Eve sin, there should be no human history after that point. And God is saying, he's promising that human history is going to continue in the wake of man's rebellion for this one reason. So that he, in the fullness of time, might bring forth a seed of the woman who will be the conquering hero of history. that leads to two deductions what it means first is that jesus christ is the hero of human history not ultimately but totally that means that the ultimate meaning friends i mean i just i can't i can't i can't press this urgently enough because what that means is that the meaning of all of god's providence in history is the preeminence of jesus christ All of it. That means that the ultimate meaning of every culture, every century, every empire, every presidential administration, every sphere and field of human learning, every revolution, every continent, every piece of flora, every piece of fauna, every person, every technological advance, all music, all art, all learning, all... All events in human history, all language, every single part of human history, every corporation, every legal system, every living room, every boardroom, every courtroom, the purpose of it all, every discovery, every invention, all human exploration, all human achievements, the purpose of it all. Yes, and even every hurricane and every tornado, and every earthquake, and every war, every every family structure, every facet, every sphere, every movement, and every moment of human history, and your life and mine, the ultimate meaning of it all is to be the canvas from which God brings forth this conquering seed, which is his son, Jesus Christ. That's how the Bible views history. And that should change the way we view it. And that leads to a second implication, which is if Jesus Christ is the hero of human history, then by definition he is also necessarily the hero of the Bible. Because the Bible is a subset of history. So that leads to our second point. You see how how important it is? If you don't submit at the front end to the way the Bible thinks about history, then you're going to misread history. You're going to think that, that history is mainly about what man is doing. And that Jesus Christ, in the grace of God, in the grace of God, he pops Jesus Christ into history. But really, the main forces in history are what men do. And friends, that is a complete misreading of history. When we submit to the way the Bible talks about history, the way God, who is the author of history, talks about what its meaning is going to be, then when we submit to that at the beginning, then we can begin to comprehend that this whole thing we call human history is a God-ordained, God-governed, God-ruled theater for the display of Jesus Christ's preeminence. That is not overstatement. It is, if anything, biblical understatement. So our second point is that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Now, when you look at the Bible, to the naked eye, right, you look at the Bible, you look at the table of contents in the Bible, to the naked eye, the Bible looks a lot like central, central Florida from the air. Right? It's just a lot of lakes. You ever flown into Orlando and you go, man, there are a lot of lakes here. And they're bodies of water. And there's an abundance of them, but they're mostly unconnected. And to the naked eye, that's what the Bible looks like. It looks like you, and depending on how you count, you either have 66 lakes, or you have two. 66, one for each book, or you have two. There's an Old Testament lake and a New Testament lake. And if that's how we see the Bible, this series of unconnected, disconnected lakes that are full of the same uh, life-giving water, but they're not connected, if that's how we see the Bible, that's how we're going to read the Bible. And if that's how we read the Bible, we're going to treat the Bible like it's, a, it's an anthology that just collects a series of somewhat related texts that are all about God. That we'll treat the Bible like it's a collection that doesn't have a direction. And if we read the Bible that way, you know what it's going to end up being for us? It's just going to be an instruction manual. We're going to treat the Bible like it's mainly about us instead of being for us. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is not an instruction manual for us to say, well, let's see, chicken soup for the soul. You know what the Bible is? The Bible is the chronicle of God's mighty deeds of redemption for his people. The Bible is about God, and it is for us. But if you think of the Bible as just a series of disconnected lakes, you're going to treat the Bible and interpret the Bible like it's an instruction manual. Friends, I'm so glad the Bible is not a bunch of lakes. The Bible is a river. When we see the Bible the way the Bible presents itself, that we see that the Bible is a river and we need to read and understand it accordingly. And when we step into it at any point, we need to understand that there's a current, that it's headed in a direction, that it's going somewhere, that it in- it, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from the heart of God. We already know what his, from Genesis 3.15, we know what his plan is. And so all of his revelation for human history is going that way. And so when we step into the Bible, we have to understand that that current is coming from God's heart. It's flowing. It's not a swimming hole for us to dive in and get some refreshment. This river has a job to do. It's going somewhere, and it means to carry us somewhere. When we step into the Bible, we need to understand that it is headed toward the endless ocean of Jesus Christ. That river is going somewhere. Every stream, every creek, every brook, every tributary in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is all feeding that river and is carrying us to Jesus Christ. That's how the Bible presents itself. So that means, and that's what we're going to see Jesus teaches us about the Bible. So that means, my friends, right at the front end, that the meaning, or excuse me, that any other reading of the Bible, that any other exegesis of the Bible, any other interpretation or application of the Bible that reduces it just to a series of very comfortable and beautiful uh, lakes available for our refreshment or our healing, apart from that ocean, which is its goal, misreads the Bible and misuses the Bible and therefore dishonors the hero of the Bible. So this morning, although though the sermon text that John read uh, includes some texts uh, from the writer of the Hebrews and, uh, um, and the Apostle Peter, I mainly want to focus on Jesus' own teaching about his relationship to the Bible with you this morning. And, and, you know, again, here we are at that first step. You can't understand something unless you first stand under it. And so we need to stand under, when Jesus looks at the Bible, what does he see? When Jesus thinks about the Bible, what does he think about it? When he immerses himself in the storyline of the Bible, what does he see? When he digs down to the marrow of the Bible, what, or rather should I say, whom does he discover there? Jesus, he, find, he discovers himself there. That's the answer. He whether he's in the marrow, whether he sees, looks at the direction, when he stands and looks at the Bible, and when we look at the Bible through his eyes, our vision is corrected by his, and we see as we sit under his teaching that the Bible is about him. He believes much more, as we're going to see from John 5 and Luke 24, he believes much more than that, the gospel, than that the Bible merely contains his gospel. Oh, this is such an important distinction. Jesus does not simply believe that the Bible contains his gospel. He believes that the Bible is about his gospel from beginning to end, which is exactly what we would expect uh, from Genesis 3.15. Uh, so let's turn first to John chapter five, and if you it, John five uh, verses thirty-seven through forty. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, the bu- the blue uh, pew Bibles are in front of you, or should if we've done our job, there should be one uh, in reasonable proximity to your seat. And it's the, the passage I want to look at with you is on page eight ninety in uh, in that pew Bible. So John five thirty-seven through forty. So so let let me read uh, these texts. To you through this text. And the Father who sent me... So Jesus is being surrounded by some uh, Jewish opponents here, and this is what he says. I'm just dipping into the middle of the conversation. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You see, what Jesus is talking about, he's saying, and notice what he's saying. He's saying, the Father has borne witness. The Father's voice has spoken. The Father has spoken his word. And where where is his voice? Where is his witness? Where is his word? Verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, Jesus is saying, hey, the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament here. He's saying the Father, his opponents would agree, right? That, that the Father has given the scriptures to be the, his testimony, to uh, show the way of salvation. That the scriptures, uh, the inspired Old Testament scriptures, are the place where God's voice is heard. And Jesus reminds them, hey, listen, why are you reading the scriptures? Why are you even studying them? You're studying them because you believe that in them you have eternal life. And yet, you do not come to me, but I'm the one that the scriptures are about. I'm the one in whom you will have eternal life. I'm the one the Father has borne witness to. I'm the one he's been talking about. My ministry is what has been on his mind from the very beginning. And so there is no one else in whom you might have eternal life. You see what he's saying to them is he's saying, the Bible's a river. The Bible is a river that leads to me and you're swimming against the current. And in swimming against that current, you will not come to me. It's a current that flows from the heart of the Father. I am the point of his testimony. I am the point of his word. You see, if we stand under the way Jesus sees the Bible, what we will understand is that the Bible is about him. Amazing. To believe the Father is to come to Jesus. Then look at the end of the chapter, verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, this is just staggering. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Friends, that does not land on us the way it would have landed on his hearers, okay? And here's why. The five books of Moses, uh, the Pentateuch, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those were the foundational books to Israel's identity. They're the They're the books that describe the covenant relationship between God and his people. That's that's the fountainhead of Israel's identity. And And those are authored by Moses. And Jesus is saying, the point of those constitutional documents is me. They're a river with a current flowing from the heart of God that is carrying you, if you understand it, all the way into the endless ocean of my glory. And more than that, those five books, if you read the prophets, if you read the Psalms, those five books were the interpretive key for all the other books in the Old Testament all the history books, all the poetic books, all the prophetic books. And Jesus is therefore saying, my friends, that He is the key, the point. He's not just, his gospel isn't just a point. It is the point of the entire Old Testament. It's amazing. Those are before Jesus' resurrection. Let's turn to Luke 24. I mean, do, do you see what's happening? Jesus reads and understands the Bible with himself as its center. So let's turn to Luke chapter 24, which is on uh, page 885 in your Bible. So verses uh, 25 through 27 and 44 through 47. The first uh, three verses are Jesus uh, speaking to the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, O foolish ones, they've just reported to him you know, he has. They've just reported him. Yeah, Jesus was this, uh, Jesus from Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. But he was crucified. And some of our, some of our number, some of the women in our group have gone to his tomb and they didn't find his body. And they're they're discouraged because they think that Jesus's ministry has failed. They're disappointed. And Jesus says to them. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, so now what is it that the prophets have spoken? Verse 26, there's like an equal sign between verse 25 and 26. Was it not necessary? This is now the summary of what Jesus is telling them the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Ah, do you see the echo of the same thing? Suffering and glory. What does that sound like? That sounds like Genesis 3.15. The Christ, the anointed one, the conquering seed is the suffering seed and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So it's not just an isolated thing. It's not just something that he does before the resurrection. He does it after the resurrection. He doesn't just do it with his opponents. He does it with his disciples. Look at verses 44 44 through 47 now. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now he's speaking to, the, to the, the, the main disciples after his resurrection. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, threefold division of the Old Testament. In other words, this is just a way, uh, a way of him saying the whole Old Testament, because that's how the Old Testament is divided up. Three, the law, the prophets, and the writings. That, all the th- that everything written about me in the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Okay? So that's his, that's his thesis statement. So now he's going he's gonna to enable them to see those texts, their Old Testament, the way that he sees them. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Okay? So now when they understand the scriptures, what are they going to see? What does he want them to see? Equal sign now between verse 45 and 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Suffering and glory. Suffering and triumph. Do you see that? Same theme as Genesis 3.15. And now this has a missional power that is going to spread to all the earth, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that this is the vision of God's triumph being fulfilled, the suffering and glory DNA of the gospel that was embedded in Genesis 3.15. We're seeing it uh, just, just being sequenced and being brought out into the light so that they see it now. Jesus is wanting them to see it with 3D clarity. So again, we just come to the very significant point that Jesus is making. That according to him, the Bible does not merely contain the gospel. The Bible, from beginning to end, is about his gospel. So let me try to illustrate this with an illustration that I've used before uh, for, with some of you. And that's the story of the orange blossom. How many of you have walked through the orange blossom story with me before? At least who are willing to admit it publicly. Okay, so what's the purpose of an orange blossom? The purpose of an orange blossom, and it's not a trick question, the purpose of an orange blossom is to produce an orange. And what's interesting about that is if you think about it, if you think about the journey from an from a orange blossom to an orange, that's an interesting journey. There is, on that journey, there is both a discontinuity and continuity. What do I mean? Well, let's just start with the obvious discontinuity. The blossom does not look anything like the orange. Are we, are we, did I lose any of you? The blossom doesn't look like the orange. There's no apparent resemblance between them. And yet, and yet, there's an aroma that the blossom gives off that smells like the orange smells and tastes. You ever thought about that? That blossom makes a promise in its fragrance. It's saying, and it's wetting our appetite. It's preparing us. It's stirring up within us an appetite for the orange. And it's that aroma of orangeness that emerges from that blossom uh, is al- that's a promise, and that promise is ultimately fulfilled. That fragrance, if you, if you will, is a promise, and the fruit is its fulfillment. There is m- apparent m- apparent discontinuity between the blossom and the fruit. They don't look anything alike, and yet what connects them is this very profound continuity between the fragrance and the fulfillment of that fragrance in the fruit. Friends, that is, that is what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is the blossom. This, I think, is exactly what Jesus is. De- this is exactly how Jesus is describing the Old Testament to his disciples and to us in these texts. The Old Testament, in its entirety—Moses, the Law, the Prophets, uh, the Psalms—they are the blossom, and He and His ministry are the promised fruit. The scent of the suffering and conquering seed is a river of promise coming from the heart of God. that that God is eager to make sure that we hear and that we're surrounded by the smell of it and that is carrying us all the way to Jesus Christ and its fulfillment in him and his ministry. And so if Jesus is the center of the Bible's teaching, of the rest of the Bible's teaching, then doesn't it make sense that he would also be the center of his own teaching? Now, I know that sounds like a silly question, but it's actually not a silly question. It's a very important question. How are you and I, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, okay? And we're studying the Gospel of Matthew. How are we supposed to interpret and understand the Gospel of Matthew? How are we supposed to apply it? Yeah, it's about Jesus. That doesn't take a Nobel Prize winning level of intellectual ability to perceive, right? It's about Jesus. We get that. But how do you interpret and read and understand the Gospel of Matthew in a way that makes our interpretation and applications of it such that they share the jealousy of the Holy Spirit for this? suffering and glory DNA before, when you're in the flow of the gospel, before we ever get to the cross, in the flow of the gospel. Well, one of the ideas that you have to have in place, I think, is to realize that though we're re- when we're reading the gospel... In the real time that the disciples experienced Jesus' teaching, they didn't understand. I mean, that's been one of the themes that we've seen over and over again. Their ability to comprehend, even when he made it totally plain to them, was marginal at best. But when you have the gospel, the gospel is the written inspired text. And in Matthew's case, he was one of the 12. And the entire gospel was written after Jesus' crucifixion and after Jesus' resurrection. So when Matthew is on this side of Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him and the text that he's authoring, then from the very beginning, friends, from Matthew 1.1, there is embedded into this text a cross-centered Cross illuminating, cross explaining, cross emphasizing logic. Now, remember what Jesus says in John 14. He speaks to the disciples. See, what I'm saying is that Jesus is the interpretive key to the teaching of Jesus. So remember in John 14, when he speaks about the Holy Spirit, this is what he says to the disciples. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now listen to this. He will teach you all things. So Matthew, when you get ready to write your gospel, you're going to write it as the student of the Holy Spirit who's going to teach you all things. And he is going to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Bring it to remembrance in light of my death and my resurrection, so that everything in the gospel is irradiated, irradiated with the reality of Jesus' cross and the logic of the cross and the power of the cross. And I believe that every single illustration that Jesus chose, every encounter, every rebuke, everything. And we've been doing this. We've been seeing this as we've been journeying through Matthew's gospel. There is always the ultimate thing that it is illuminating is this triumph through suffering, his ministry of of dying and rising again. What, What I think we're meant to understand, friends, is that every text in the Bible and even in Jesus' own teaching in the Gospels is given to us by the Holy Spirit as a vista point. And I've used that imagery with you before. It's like a vista point. Every text, okay, if Jesus is the center of the Bible, if he is the endless ocean toward which the river of the Bible is, that flows from the heart of God in this current of redemption that we did not earn and that we should not take as a given, I mean, it is awesome. God could have had a very different river flow and flood the Garden of Eden in the wake of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, but his heart flowed with redemption, with grace. His soul was shortened by the misery that he knew would befall his people. And so that river of grace flowed from the heart of God to carry history toward that endless ocean of Jesus Christ's glory. And that means that when we have a text inspired by the Holy Spirit whose mission, Jesus tells us, is to glorify Him by taking of what belongs to Jesus and declaring it to us. John 16, 14. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. It's not fireworks. It's Jesus. So what that means is that every text that the Holy Spirit has inspired is about taking what belongs to Jesus and declaring it to the world. And in that process, glorifying Jesus. So every text, if you can picture the grandest of all canyons, this glorious work of redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. And every biblical text is a vista point that is designed by the Holy Spirit that we are ushered onto by the Spirit to stand there and have by the Spirit our eyes open so that we can behold Him. That's how you read the Bible. And any other reading, any other application, any other exegesis of any passage in the Scripture that does not lead the people of Christ to stand out on one of those vista points and look at Him is inadequate and is a misreading and is a misapplication. Think about the Beatitudes, a very familiar passage of Scripture. mean, you read the Beatitudes you're a brand-new Christian or you're a non-Christian, you read, you read the Beatitudes, you know, in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall in, inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive a mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you when people revile you and call you all kinds of evil names and you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. You read that and you think, well, I have a choice to make. Is Jesus setting a ladder in front of me? so that I have to make myself all those things or I will never be blessed. In other words, you can read the Beatitudes and conclude from them that their ultimate meaning is moralistic. In other words, hey, I'm not poor in spirit enough. I need to be more poor in spirit. I'm not meek enough. I need to be more meek so I can inherit the earth. I'm not enough of a peacemaker, and I, so I need to be more of a peacemaker in order to be a, a son of God. I'm not pure in heart enough, so that means I, I won't see God, so I better make myself more pure in heart. Is that what's going on there? No. No, that's not what's going on there. You might be tempted to believe it. You might want to believe it, because if you believe that, then you don't need a Savior. You just said, God gave you a ladder. It's a holy ladder. Jesus showed you the ladder. Now get to work. Save yourself. Is that what Jesus is pronouncing his blessing on? Holy, moralistic effort. Is that what he is saying? That's why you're blessed. When you, when you make yourself those things, absolutely not. Why is Jesus declaring people who fit that description Uh, to be under the blessing of God because of conformity, because each one of them is a description of him. The Beatitudes are Jesus' self-portrait. They're his autobiography. Who is the one who is poor in spirit, who receives the kingdom of heaven? Who is the poorest one in spirit, who though he was rich, yet for our sake made himself poor, so that in him... Through his poverty, we might be made rich in the kingdom of heaven. It's him. Who is the one who mourns as the man of sorrows and receives, that is satisfied, Isaiah says, with the fruits of his labor? It's Jesus Christ. He is the center of the Beatitudes. Who is the meekest one who inherits the entire earth, who suffers and goes into a tomb, The strongest one is the meekest one, and God gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. It's Jesus Christ. Who is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness so much? It's Jesus Christ. Who is the merciful one? It's Jesus Christ. Who is the purest in heart who sees God? It's Jesus Christ. who's the ultimate peacemaker, and so is called the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ. You see, who is the one who is persecuted for righteousness' sake, who is blessed? Because It's Jesus Christ. You see, what I'm commending to you is the jealousy that Jesus has, that the Father has, and that the Holy Spirit has for Jesus' in the way that we interpret the Bible. And it's not until we enter into this relationship with Jesus and that we're in union with him as this triumphant seed who suffered in order to obtain his glory. That union with him is the only way that you will ever have poverty of spirit or uh, mourning over sin or meekness or any of those things. Those will be fruits of your union with him. They will not be a ladder that you climb to him. So let's conclude with uh, just a couple of pastoral reflections, uh, one for uh, Christians and then one for non-Christians. Okay? And, and this is what struck me with such force this week as I was working on this passage. You know, when I had outlined this message uh, about ten days ago I had a very different ending to this message. And I just kept I just kept just kept coming up against the wall. I was like, Father, what I thought I thought I understood where this is supposed to go. I am often like that. And God is very patient with me. And so what kept striking me again and again, again and again, I just felt this this need to examine my own heart. Like what was what was God showing me when I'm when I, when I hit my forehead against this wall, I couldn't, couldn't see my way through. And what kept striking me was, was this theme of the real Jesus and the call of God to join him in his holy jealousy for the real Jesus. Because that's really what Jesus has been showing us um, in, in, uh, in these texts that we've been looking at. You know, the real Jesus is the hero of history. The real Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And, and, and the Father is jealous for that. The Spirit is jealous for Jesus being seen in those ways. And, and Jesus is as well. And we must join them, right? Their jealousy for the honor of Jesus must become increasingly ours. And friends, that is never going to happen in your life or mine apart from the Bible. Let me just be very clear about that. That is never going to happen you will never have true jealousy that that echoes the father's jealousy for Jesus or the spirit's jealousy for Jesus or Jesus's own jealousy for himself you will never have that apart from the bible you cannot be thrilled with Jesus and bored with the bible you can't be you cannot be devoted to Jesus and not devoted to the word You cannot be, this is an implication of what Jesus has been telling us. If the whole Bible is about him, if all of history is about him, then we can't, it's impossible to be committed to Jesus and not be committed to the word that's about Jesus. And let me tell you why. Because how do you know, apart from the word, how do you know that the Jesus you're thrilled about is the real Jesus? How do you know he's the real Jesus? How do you know that he isn't just a counterfeit that you've minted out of your own heart from your own wishful thinking? How do you know that? Oh friends, there's a real simple answer. The only Jesus who gives himself to be known in the world is the Jesus who is given to us from the mighty river of the Bible. And so it's utterly critical that we as Christians, I'm talking to my brothers and sisters, we have to know our story. We have to know our king's story. We have to love the word. We have to submit to the way Jesus sees the Bible. And we have, to, we have to go into that current and not swim against it and let it carry us over and over and over again to his glory. We need to step out on those vista points in the Bible, not misuse the Bible, but step out over and over and over again on those vista points that the Holy Spirit's provided for us so that we can see that great one over and over and over again. We live in a cultural moment of such opportunity. I know people think the sky is falling down. The sky is never falling down when Jesus is the king. We just misunderstand history. We live at such a a, a such an important cultural moment that is full of opportunity, and it is also therefore full of great responsibility for Christians, and that is that we must be passionate about the real Jesus, which means necessarily that we're going to have to be passionate about the Jesus of the Bible. And you might say, well, listen, what the world needs is Jesus. You're, this is a typical pastor. You're saying, hey, got to love your Bible, got to love your Bible. No, I'm saying, you've got to love Jesus. You've got to love the real Jesus. And you won't know who the real Jesus is or why you should love him apart from the Bible. Yes, the world needs Jesus. But my question for you is, which one? Which Jesus does he need? Does the world need? I'll tell you, there's only one Jesus the world needs. The Jesus who stands forth, who, who is that endless ocean that the river of the Bible is carrying us to. That is the Jesus the world needs. You can't You can't be a proponent of the real Jesus without being a student of the Word that teaches us about the real Jesus, that gives him to us. You can't be a proponent of the real Jesus and be ignorant of the Bible because you don't know otherwise whether the Jesus you're talking about is the real Jesus. How else do you think we got to a cultural moment where people from within the church, my friends, within the church, the problem's not in the culture, the problem's inside the church. It's with people who profess to be Christians. They make Jesus commend things he condemns, and they make him condemn things he commends. No wonder the culture looks at the church's position on all kinds of social issues and goes, You're not trustworthy. And you know how that happens? It happens when people who profess loyalty to Christ untether and unhook their understanding of Jesus from the Bible. It's not hard to understand. And so then what happens is you've got a Jesus. When you untether him from the Bible, you've got a Jesus who's infinitely elastic. He's a Play-Doh puppet, and you can remake him Any way you want, according to the dictates of your preferences. But that is not the real Jesus. That is not the Jesus the world needs. Let's get much more jealous for the real Jesus than we are. Now, how about for non Christians, the real Jesus for you? Um, I'm very grateful that you're here today, and if you've made it this far, I'm proud of you. If you made it this far, you've noticed that the argument I've been making essentially has a circular character. And here's the argument. I'll I'll just put the words in your mouth. Believe the Bible is all about Jesus because Jesus says it's all about him. And in a sense, that's exactly what I'm saying. That is what I'm saying. But do you know, do you know what the key thing is? Do you know why you should trust? I'll tell you why I trust Jesus' explanation of the Bible. It's because trusting his explanation of the Bible and trusting him are inseparable. And so so really for you as a non-Christian who's sitting here and is wondering about what Christianity means and what the next step for you is, your most important issue is to determine the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. And while there are many arguments and there are many reasons to trust him, there is one towering above all others, and it is this cross. This is the proof of the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. Friends, in order to understand the Bible, you have to stand under the Jesus of the Bible. And in order to understand Jesus, you have to stand under his cross. Because what the cross teaches us is the proof of his trustworthiness, that Jesus Christ is holy, that the real Jesus is holy, that the real Jesus is loving, that the real Jesus lived the life that God required of you to live and which you haven't. None of us have. That the real Jesus, out of love for his father and love for sinners, gave himself freely and fully as the substitute for sinners in history, to save sinners in history, gave himself as the substitute on the cross to bear in his body all the divine penalty, divinely earned penalty for all the sins of his people. That's the real Jesus. And he ro- that real Jesus rose from the dead to demonstrate his lordship and his authority. He is the champion substitute of his people. He's gone all the way, to the end, for sinners who were his enemy, and he did it in love without you or me asking him to do it. That, if, I could, if he did that for me, I can trust the way he thinks and explains, thinks about, and explains the Bible to me. So I prayed all week uh, that this morning you would find yourself on one of those vista points, not by your design, but by God's, and maybe God would have suddenly opened in the Holy Spirit. This ministry would have opened your eyes today to see that you've been brought to a place where God has been showing you for the first time, perhaps, your need, your estrangement from God, that the wrath of God abides on you, and that Jesus, Jesus has been provided by God as the all-sufficient Savior for sinners just like you. And I've prayed... I prayed that now with your eyes open and your hearts open and you see Jesus Christ and him crucified, that you would come to him. Yeah, that you wouldn't just drive by. You see, it's not enough to know that a river exists. It's not enough to know where it is and not enough to know where it's going. You have to get in. You have to get in, and I pray that you would do that this morning. Isn't it time, my friend, Isn't it time for you to stop swimming against the current of history, against the current of the Bible, against the current of your own life and let God's mercy carry you all the way into Christ? I pray that it would be. Let's pray. Lord, none of us is... adequately jealous for your honor when we read the Bible or when we hear the gospel. Thank you that our zeal is not our salvation. Thank you that we are not justified by our jealousy but yours. Thank you that there is a shelter for us in you and oh how I pray that today you would grant in your great mercy that every single one of us would be in that river and let it carry us to you. And I pray in your name, amen.